please be seated. And will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. Janet had been sick, very sick, for most of the four years that I knew her. When she texted me asking me to come see her two weeks ago, we both knew it would be for the last time. She was ready for the pain to be over, and we could and did pray together for that comfort. But then, what else to pray? What else to say? How do you face troubles like these, pain, illness, fear, loss, even death itself, and find a path to peace? How are we to move through tough times with a sense of equilibrium, with the feeling of being held that Pastor Rick described for us so well last week? As I looked at this psalm, its words full of praise and glory, I came to realize that it is not mainly through petitionary prayer that we find that path to true comfort and peace. Of course, the Bible is filled with petition where you make your needs known to God and you cry out and ask for help, for success, for mercy, for deliverance. You should do that and we will do that in just a few minutes. But the ultimate and main way to handle the troubles of life with peace is not just through petitionary prayers, but through worship. This particular psalm, Psalm 95, is the classic text in the Bible about worship. Through the centuries, this is the text that the Christian church turned to maybe more than any other single place in the Bible to inform our worship. This text tells us what we need to know. It tells us what worship is and why we should worship and how we can worship well. So first, what is worship? According to the Bible, according to this psalm, Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in such a way that it energizes and engages your whole person, your entire being, heart, spirit, and mind, or emotion, will, and intellect. You've got to engage the whole self to be fully worshiping. Psalm 95 lays it out for us. In verses 1 and 2, we are called to worship with emotion. Sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise. Praise God with thanksgiving. And in verse 6, we are called to worship God with our will in humility. These ritual actions of bowing down are meant to show humbleness and a willingness to commit yourself to the work of building up God's realm in the world to let God direct and transform your life. In verse 7, we are called to worship God with our minds, with reason. Listen to what God is saying and understand. It's the language of thinking and understanding. So we are to worship God with our whole selves, heart, spirit, and mind. If you go to church and say your lines and nod your head at the appropriate moments, 
but never experience within your inner being that overwhelming sense of beauty and joy, it's not fully worship. Or let's flip it over. You could go to a service and experience a great emotional experience. You could weep. You could experience incredible aesthetic experience, but if it doesn't change the fundamental way that you live your life, if it doesn't change your character, if it doesn't change your life patterns, it isn't fully worship. Again, see what the text says, bowing and kneeling and singing for joy, praise and thanksgiving and changing your life. And what is it that engages the entire being that really lights you up from the inside? It's the act of assigning ultimate value. If you look at the psalm, you'll see that all of the emotion, all of the great engagement, it comes from something the psalmist is doing. In verse 1 and 2, it says, sing and shout, and then in verse 3, it gives you the why. Because God is great, the Most High King, the heights and depths of the earth are God's, the sea and the dry land in God's hands. And again, in verse 6, we're called to bow down and worship, and 7 gives us the why. For God is our God, not just a great God, and he's a shepherd and we are his sheep. All of the emotion, all of the worship, all of the life transformation comes from what the psalmist is doing. He's taking inventory of the excellencies of God. He's going over them, reviewing them, enumerating them, the things that God has done until there is an explosion of joy in his life. Here's a true story. About a year ago, an auctioneer in Norway was clearing out an old estate and putting items up for auction on the internet. As often happens, the items of lesser value were grouped into what folks in the business call a job lot of junk, or as they listed on the website, an assortment of costume jewelry and other items. These odds and ends had been around forever, and no one really knew where they came from or if they had any value at all. Mary Hekestad bought the box lot, it literally came in a banana box, and brought it home. Sorting through the pieces, she noticed a shiny-looking ring that caught her attention. So she took it to a jeweler, who pulled out that little jeweler's loop thing and to take a closer look. He observed the warm tone of the metal, the delicately carved braiding, the feeling the weight of it, the texture, the worn surface on the interior. And bit by bit, as he is looking at it and thinking about it, all of a sudden that eye thing pops out and he's got labored breathing. He's starting to feel faint because he's realized that in his hand is this unique piece of jewelry, this lost piece of art from the Scandinavian Viking Age. It's priceless, priceless. And the reason that suddenly all of his mind and all of his heart and all of his emotion are engaged, the reason that this is happening is because he realizes the value of what's in his hand. He realizes that this piece in his hand is worth more than anything in his shop, maybe more than everything in the shop put together. The original owners of that job lot of junk 
hadn't recognized the true value of what they had. And because they didn't recognize the value, they weren't living in accordance with the value of what they had. That illustration, better than any other, tells you what worship is. The psalmist is calling us to do exactly what that jeweler does. It starts rationally by thinking, by looking at what and who God is, what God has done. It enumerates, it inventories, it goes through it until it dawns on you how beautiful, how valuable God is. The very English word worship comes from the Old English worthship, to see God's worth and grasp God's worth in such a way that you begin to live in accordance with it. Most people in this country, we know from the polls, believe in God, but they have God in the way that that family had that ring, completely unaffected, completely unaware of the value of it, off in a banana box somewhere in a closet. The difference between a limp along life and a transformed life, a life shot through with thanksgiving and joy, is not the difference between believing in God and not believing in God. It's the difference between worshiping and not worshiping. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to God, seeing what God is worth and living in such a way that it transforms your whole life. That's worship, nothing less. It's not just a little inspiration. It's not just a little pick-me-up, something that makes us feel like part of a community. It is existential. It's ascribing ultimate value to God in such a way that it galvanizes, electrifies, and changes your whole life. So that's what worship is. Now why should we worship God? Why should we work at this? And the answer is, because you're already worshiping something. You're already ascribing ultimate value to something. The world is not simply divided into people who worship and people who don't. The world is divided into people who worship that which is life-giving and that which will distort your life or harm your life. And those who worship that which is life-giving recognize where their true worship is directed. The psalmist is calling us to recognize where is it that your worship is directed and calling us to bring that direction back to God. And that's what changes your life because whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks approval of others is controlled by that need for approval. Whatever that thing is that you so desperately want, that you obsess over, your relation to it is worship. Your whole life, your entire being oriented toward it. When we worship God, we get realigned towards that which is life-giving. And we'll never be completely perfect in our worship, but luckily, we are orienting ourselves more and more towards a God who is a God of forgiveness and grace so that even when we mess up, we have not failed God, but have allowed for another moment of God's intervention in our lives. 
now recognizing the life-giving, life-transforming power of worship, and that we never do it quite perfectly, let's ask the text how we can do it well. How can we get better at it? So here's how we worship. First, you need a community. It's so obvious you miss it, but the psalm is all in the plural. The phrase, let us, is repeated a dozen times. We're being called to worship in a community, in a group, and of course, individual worship and prayer is valuable. But our worship is so much better in community because the beautiful diversity of creation helps to reflect the beautiful diversity of God. The act of worship begins with praise, as we've discussed, and that praise is supported by the telling of story of who God is and what God does. And then, if you read the entirety of Psalm 95, you will find the final four and a half verses. That's the sermon within the psalm. Though as I sat with Janet on the 16th floor of the Ellison building overlooking the Charles on a beautifully clear March morning, I briefly wondered if maybe it would be best to skip that part. The end of the psalm gets confusing, severe. It's actually a real downer. You know what happened in the desert with the Israelites? Those Israelites, they were restless, they were homeless, and they were so close to finding that rest that they were seeking in the land of milk and honey but they let fear overtake them, and they didn't trust in God. Their hearts were hardened. So God punishes them with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. God denies them God's rest. Why would you end a psalm that way? The author of the book of Hebrews clues us in. The rest that God offers is quite different from the physical rest that the Israelites were searching for. To rest in God is to rest in the gospel, the good news of God's grace and forgiveness and love. Morality says, if I live a good life, God will bless me. But the gospel says the exact opposite, that God gives us forgiveness and mercy, love and grace through Jesus Christ. The ultimate rest is to believe in the gospel, because if you believe the gospel, you can rest spiritually. You don't have to be perfect. Not everything has to be going well in your life for God to bless you. God already loves you. God already accepts you. Why would this be at the end of a psalm about worship? Because if you don't understand gospel rest, you're going to turn worship into one more work, one more leg of that rat race. If I come to worship and do it right, if I never miss church, God will bless me. It will be one more load to bear, and you won't really be worshiping God at all. So how are we to face times of trouble and find a path to peace? The psalmist answers, let us make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Let us worship God with our whole selves, heart, spirit, and mind, lit up from the inside. Let us listen to hear what God is saying, who God is, and where we are in the story.
Let us remember the lessons of the past, and let us ultimately find rest in the love and grace of God. Amen.